0: Let's bow our hearts just one more time, shall we, as we come to God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that in this crazy, twisted, mixed-up world, we have a light. We have a lamp, Lord, to illuminate our path. And Father, as we turn to your word this morning, I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us and bless us. That, Lord, you would also cause us to take another step of faith in our journey with you. Lord, recognizing that you are in complete control of all things. Lord, just bless this time of study. And indeed, Lord, as we start a new book this morning, we just pray you bless this entire study of this book. The Lord, we would learn more of the great God we serve. And of your ways, so that it would transform our thinking, we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we are on a journey going through the minor prophets at the moment, and just to uh, remind you, if I can. The Minor Prophets is a a label that probably is not the best because they're not minor in any way of being insignificant or less important. Uh, It's simply that the books typically are shorter than those that are classified as major prophets. Um, Just to go through the books as we have them, of course we've got the Law. That typically refers to the first five books of the Bible. uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then we've got the History Books, which really tells the, the history of the nation of Israel from the time of Joshua going into the promised land right up until the time of uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther and so on Uh, and of course it deals with uh, the build up to the Assyrian captivity, we were looking a lot about that during our study of Hosea and of course the Babylonian captivity Uh, and then for Ezra, and Nehemiah. They deal with the events after the Jews had returned, or those that had returned to Israel. And of course, Esther, um, still in that historical setting, dealing with uh, some of those Jews that had been dispersed and uh, were living in various other places at that time. Uh, we then have got the poetical books, which really is Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Uh, and then, of course, we've got this section of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations is included in there being written by Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Of course, we've talked through Isaiah recently in our Thursday studies, and we're now going to go through Jeremiah. Uh, and then we've got the group we're on at the moment, these 12 books that we classify as the minor prophets, and that kind of concludes then the Old Testament. If we look at the the minor prophets as we have them, we've studied now through Hosea. Uh, I loved it. I hope you enjoyed and were blessed by going through. Really, the, the, the subtext of this book is that the Lord loves Israel despite her sin. And we saw that played out uh, dramatically in the life of this man, Hosea, and in the lessons that we learned through that book. We're going to move this morning into the book of Joel. And really the theme there is that judgment precedes Israel's future revival. That God is going to bring judgment. We'll talk more, obviously, about this book in a moment. Uh, the book of Amos, which will be our next one. Joel's only three chapters, so we're the Lord willing will only be here for three weeks. And then we'll be moving into the book of Amos. Uh, and the theme there is that God is just and must judge sin okay so we'll look at those you know, things in detail as we get there the book of obadiah uh it's a short sure retribution must overtake a merciless pride it's a very short little book uh, we'll delve into that when we get there lord willing the book of jonah again divine grace is universal it wasn't just for the jews yes they were his chosen people and we'll talk and we have talked lots about that um but the gospel has gone out to the gentiles as well and god gives the gentiles opportunities to repent Micah, the really, the theme there is that the Bethlehem born Messiah is going to be the one who will come and deliver. And then we have the book of Nahum. Doom is to come on wicked Nineveh, the same city that Jonah preached to. That had the opportunity and did repent at the preaching of Jonah, later rebelled. God is not going to sit idly by when people turn away from him. The book of Habakkuk. Well, it's a a book that the Apostle Paul in the New Testament really builds very much on, uh, that great statement that the just shall live by faith, uh, from chapter 2, verse 4. And Paul builds three books seemingly on this, the book of Romans... Uh, the book of Galatians and also the book of Hebrews. I know there's some contention over the author of Hebrews, but it would seem to be Paul because all of these three books linked together. And Looking at the just in Romans, um, the way we should live in Galatians, and then the whole idea of faith in Hebrews. All this trilogy based upon Habakkuk 2.4, which is quoted in each of those books. Then the book of Zephaniah, that the day of the Lord will precede the kingdom. Now we're going to see these ideas really start to be built this morning in the book of Joel. Um, But this coming day of the Lord, we'll talk about what it is in a moment. The book of Haggai, just a short two-chapter book. But what a book that is. Speaks of that time after the return, after the exile to Babylon. uh, And that lesson to consider your ways that God must be number one. The people had come back and they were focusing on their own houses, their own things. And God's house was laying in a state of disrepair. And God, through Haggai, challenges the people. It's a really challenging book. I'm sure the Lord will speak to us through. Zechariah then, really, is repentant Israel will see their Messiah. And we've got that great line toward the end of Zechariah. the Israel will look upon the one whom they've pierced and they will mourn they will realize that Jesus is their Messiah. And then to finish the Old Testament, Malachi, uh, that judgment is certain for the wicked. So those are kind of the, the basic themes that we're going to be looking at as we go through the rest of the Minor Prophets. Uh, If we look at the chronology of all of these things, that's all of the books of the Bible laid out. If we just kind of gray out the others, uh, you can see the Minor Prophets are kind of roughly where they fit. Uh, From about 835 BC, before Christ, through to about 400 BC. So roughly a span just over 400 years in writing. After the time of David and then Solomon, the kingdom divides. And then after that, God starts to speak to the nation of Israel and us, of course, uh, as well, um, through these prophets uh, that start to follow on from that time point. And then Joel, interestingly, seems to be the very first of these prophets, from, again, about 835 to 796. Now, there's no date given in the book, so we don't want to be um, too dogmatic about this. Um, but for a number of reasons, a lot of commentators seem to think that uh, Joel certainly sits there. And Amos will quote from Joel. Isaiah seems to pick up themes from Joel. So it does seem, in a sense, that Joel is a little bit like the, the granddad of all the prophets. They all build from this starting point. That We've had, of course, the likes of Moses and Samuel, and of course David spoke prophetically in through psalms. There's many prophetic psalms. But then God starts really speaking to his people and to the world through these prophets, the minor and the major prophets. But Joel seems to be the one that comes first. And it's very significant because the lessons that we learn and we see in Joel are really just amplified and expounded in the rest of the prophets. So this is really a starting point in many ways. And it's very interesting as we start to look at the, the themes and the ideas that come through. So... Again, the subtext for this could be the day of the Lord. It's interesting that Joel is going to start by addressing this issue. And it is fascinating in a sense because there were many things to come for the nation. Of course, there was the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and the other prophets will address that. Joel kind of jumps right to the end game and he speaks about the day of the Lord. Now, if you're not sure what the day of the Lord is, we find it recorded in Scripture many, many times. Joel will mention it five times specifically in these three chapters uh, that he gives us. But it's speaking of that time that is yet to come when the Lord will bring his wrath upon this world. Now, another way we we refer to this period of time is as the tribulation. It's that time that's coming. uh, In Daniel, we have Daniel's 70-week prophecy. Of course, we know that uh, 483 years of that prophecy have already been fulfilled. And there's seven years yet to play out, historically, according to uh, Scripture. And it's that seven-year period that is yet future from where we are right now that Joel specifically addresses in his writings. And then the other prophets will pick up these ideas, and they will expound them, and they will develop them yet further. So it's fascinating, again, just to get the idea here, that we are looking at the first uh, utterance of God through a prophet, it's concerning these things that are coming. And we have such a great clarity of what's coming because of these prophets. And yes, in the New Testament, we have many uh, prophetic um, verses in the Bible, or in the New Testament, and of course, Revelation is almost entirely given over to prophecy, of the things that are coming. Interestingly, in the uh, 404 verses in the book of Revelation, there are over 800 allusions to the Old Testament, That means almost pretty much, for every verse in the book of Revelation, there's two references back to the Old Testament. So if you want to understand Revelation, we need to kind of understand the Old Testament, and this is a great place to start getting our uh, picture frame kind of laid out. You know, if you're going to do a puzzle, typically you'll start with the the edge pieces and the corner pieces and things. You start to get your framework. Once you've got your framework, then you start to fill in the inside. Joel is a little bit like that for us. He's going to give us this framework. Now, of course, it does help because we have... Other books that give greater clarity, we have Revelation, which gives us a lot of detail. Daniel, we've also recently studied. So we'll be able to put a lot of these things together, and hopefully it'll make a lot of sense. We're going to see that Joel is introduced as the son of uh, Pethuel. Apart from that, we don't know very much about him. We're not told, really, where he comes from. We're not told of his life or anything else. But we do know that his name means Jehovah is God. What a great name. What a great declaration, this man. And he's been called by some the John the Baptist of the Old Testament. And rightly so, because John the Baptist came preparing the way. Joel is doing exactly the same thing. He's preparing the way. John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus to come the first time. To get people ready to to hear him, to see him. Joel, in a sense, is preparing the way for the second coming of Jesus Christ. So there are a number of similarities. And as I said, that phrase, the Day of the Lord, we'll find five times as we go through this study. As we said already, uh, probably the earliest of the prophets, and a number of reasons, as we said already, why we think that's the case. I just want to read this to you by Montague Mills. He said, Joel was probably the first of the so-called writing prophets. Okay, So we've got you know, the likes of Samuel, Moses, and many others. But but these are the books that we have written. So uh, the first of the so-called writing prophets. prophets. So this book provides a valuable insight into the history of prophecy, particularly as it furnishes a framework for the end times which is faithfully followed by all subsequent scripture. God started a new work with the writing of Joel, that of preparing the human race for the end of this temporal era, and thus gave an outline of his total plan. Later prophets, including even our Lord, would only flesh out this outline. But in keeping with the divine nature of true scripture, never found it necessary to deviate from this, the initial revelation. How about you? That makes me feel quite excited about this book, because this really is, um, they're, they're all, every prophetic book, every book in the Bible is important for different reasons, but this really is very special because of that. The outline that we're going to go through, Well, we're going to see the description of a locust plague. That's the setting of this book. That there had been a truly cataclysmic, in a sense, plague that had affected the land. And we'll talk about it in a short while. And that seems to be the reason then that then God uses Job to speak to the nation on the back of what has just happened. So clearly there's this historical element to this. And yet at the same time, we'll see it's prophetic. The Lord wasn't just speaking to the Jews at that time, but speaking down through the ages. And we'll see that clearly come out in the text itself. In chapter 2, we see a description of an enemy invasion that is yet to come. Even in Joel's time, it seems to be something that was spoken of as yet future. And then there's this divine appeal to Judah to repent. And then there's the declaration of a fast called, which would be really interesting. We'll talk about that. It's a fascinating few verses. And then the divine deliverance promise. So those are the kind of subheadings in the sense of what we're going to be looking at now. Before we get into the text, I want to just highlight something that we read back in Hosea. Verse 10 of chapter 12 said, I have also, God speaking, I have spoken by the prophets. God, of course, speaks by the prophets. He says, and I've multiplied visions. So God's saying that he's given the prophets visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Now, Joel is a great example of this. These similitudes are like a model or a type. So Joel is going to give us a real example of something that happened historically and yet is a model of something else that is yet to come. And we find God used this countless times in Scripture. Now in the New Testament, in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul there says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day, or holiday, that's where we get the name from, a holy day, or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. And notice what Paul says, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body or the substance or the fulfillment is of Christ. So Paul's saying that we've got these feasts, these Sabbaths, but they're only a shadow. They're pointing to something else. Something else is to be illuminated effectively by them or is the real purpose of those things. Now when we consider the Sabbath days of Israel, they had 70 Sabbaths according to the law of Moses. There was every weekly Shabbat, the Sabbath, on a Saturday for the Jews, or from sundown, typically on a Friday evening, to sundown on the Saturday evening, it was their Shabbat, their, their, their day of rest. And there was 52 of those, of course, during the year. There was seven days, specifically, that were set aside for Passover. There was another day for the Feast of Pentecost. There was a day for the Feast of Trumpets. There was another day for the Feast of Atonement. There were seven days set aside for the Feast of Tabernacles, and then there was an additional eighth day of assembly. You add all that up, there's 70 days, which is just the way God does things. God seems to like sevens. Sevens always seem to be complete. Uh, And so Israel's Sabbaths were based upon their lunar calendar. Uh, And this is how God had organized their uh, memorials. Again, we spoke earlier about memorials, why memorials are important, because they, they remind us of events that have taken place, so that we don't lose focus, we don't forget what God has done. So these things, the weekly Sabbath was to remind us that actually our provision is from God, that we can stop for a day. And it's okay, the world doesn't come to a halt if we stop for a day. You know, and every single one of these feasts were there to teach them lessons, to remind them of what God had done, of course, the deliverance from Egypt and the wilderness wanderings and so on. Now, if we take just the typical feasts as we, we think of them, they're given to us a number of places in Scripture, Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, and elsewhere. Um, the first three of these feasts were prophetically fulfilled during what we speak of as Passion Week. Okay, it's Passion Week, the week leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And each of these feasts were prophetically fulfilled. In fact, the real events were just pointing forward to the... the, the, They're like matinee performances of the the real performance that was yet to come. If you look at the plan of Passion Week, as it were, it starts really on the Sunday the 10th. Uh, This would be in the the Jewish calendar. Uh, And... It's incredible because that was the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the Sunday, we call it Palm Sunday, and it was the day that Jesus rides in on the 10th day of the month. Now Moses, back in the book of Exodus, had already said that they were to take a lamb on the 10th day of the month and they were to keep it until the 14th day of the month and they were then they were to sacrifice his lamb and the Lord was going to pass over the land. And they took Jesus effectively, they welcomed him into Jerusalem, laying their coats down on the palm branches on the 10th day. And it was not until the 14th day of the month then that Jesus was crucified. And that becomes, of course, the Feast of Passover. Paul in First Corinthians actually gives us a clue to all this. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Paul says this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. But notice not just Christ died for our sins, but according to the scriptures? What scriptures? According to the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Passover was a model in advance that spoke of what Jesus would accomplish, that this lamb without blemish would have his blood shed. And those who marked their houses in Egypt by the blood of this shed lamb will be safe from the wrath of God that was going to pass over the land. And it speaks, of, of course, of salvation that was accomplished through Jesus Christ. Dying on the cross, his blood was shed. Those whose lives are marked by that blood, are safe from the wrath of God. So the whole Passover thing, a real historical event, was just a model in advance of what God was going to accomplish at Calvary through Jesus. And then, of course, the next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, as it got to the next day, the Jewish day starts in the evening. It was as the evening began that Jesus' body was placed in the ground, in the grave. And Jesus himself has said that unless a grain of wheat dies it abides alone but he spoke of it bringing forth much fruit so the feast of unleavened bread speaks of the body of christ being in the ground it says uh, again and he was buried and it goes on and he rose again again notice according to the scriptures so these feasts were the models that spoke of what will be accomplished and then the resurrection day the first day of the week the feast of first fruits Jesus rose on the Feast of Firstfruits. And Paul makes the point that Jesus is the firstfruits of those that have risen from the dead. So these three feasts all have their prophetic fulfillment in the events that took place during Passion Week. Then we've got the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost as we typically know it. Pente because it was 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. Okay, In fact, it was the seven sevens, the 49 weeks, uh, or 49 days rather than the 50th day, uh, was the day of Pentecost, uh, also known as the Feast of Weeks. Now, I just can't resist just taking you through this very quickly, and you'll see why we're going through this in a second. Um, but the Feast of Harvest, as it was also known, it was the, the first instruction that it was a new offering to be brought. This is interesting. You see the Hebrew word there. I'm not going to try and mispronounce it. You can do that in your own time if you want it. Um, But it's translated meat in the the King James. But literally, it was a sacrificial offering, usually bloodless and voluntary. This whole feast was about a sacrificial offering that was voluntary. And it was something new that God was doing. Now, This is really quite provocative as you start to think about it, particularly when you think what the Feast of Pentecost symbolizes, how it was played out and how God what the model pointed to see this feast speaks of something new that was to be voluntarily presented to the lord well what is it historically that we know was the fulfillment of the feast of pentecost or harvest well of course it was the birth of the church because that's what dr luke tells us at the beginning of luke's account in the book of acts when the day of pentecost was fully come he says okay that that whole expression when this day This feast was finally fulfilled. And, of course, the feast itself had always been celebrated by the Jews as something that was new. Well, the church was something new. It was something that was to be voluntarily presented. The church was just that. It's the only feast where leaven is to be used. Of course, leaven speaks of sin, and because it corrupts by puffing up, we're told in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8, and so on, But Israel was to remain separate from the world and uncontaminated. So why would you have leaven in this feast? Well, if this feast really is the model looking toward the birth of the church, we know that the church is to grow to maturity in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom we're to shine as lights in the world. So it makes total sense that in this model, the leaven is within this celebration. The the bread that was to be baked was to include leaven because we are to grow in the midst of this world. Dake in his commentary says this, No bread made with leaven could be burned upon the altar, so the object was not a burnt offering. This was a present to Jehovah from the best produce of the earth. Interesting, isn't it? And of course the church is not destined to be consumed on the altar of God's wrath, but instead is a gift from the Father to his Son of those the Father has drawn out of the world. In Leviticus, in regard to this feast, uh, it just says you should bring out of your habitations two wave loaves and two tenth deals. We haven't got time to go into the details, but the two all very interesting. Two always has this idea of witness and so on. Uh, they should be a fine flour, they should be bacon with leaven, and they are to be the first fruits unto the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? That This feast of harvest is speaking of that which is to voluntarily be presented, something new that's going to be the first fruits unto the Lord. And what are we told in James? Of his own will Begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. James links this directly together. That we are to be, just as this feast was to be giving the first fruits of the harvest of the Lord, so we as the church are to be the first fruits of his creatures. So lots more in that, but I just want to give you a quick overview. So that leaves us our last three feasts. And I believe these are all prophetically outlined in the book of Joel. So Joel is going to give us these historical things, but these feasts yet in Israel's calendar, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, I think as we're going to go through, we're going to see the models looking forward to that which is still yet to be fulfilled. So these feasts that Israel celebrated, that they celebrated in the wilderness, and were commanded to celebrate afterwards, they all point to what is yet to come, and Joel is the one that links these together for us. Of course, the Feast of Trumpets, well, we're going to see a lot about blowing trumpets in the book of Joel. And of course, if you've read Scripture, you'll know in Revelation, we have seven trumpets that are blown. And yes, there's a definite link here. And the idea, again, of fire symbolizing judgment is seen in both. Then we have the Feast of Atonement. And we'll pick that up from Joel chapter 2, verse 12. It seems to the theme changes, and it changes to the idea of repentance and reconciliation, which is what atonement was all about. We have this idea of the scapegoat fleeing to the wilderness. Within the feast, and it's interesting because that's exactly what Israel are going to be doing. They will flee to the wilderness, So that's detailed for us in Revelation twelve. So we'll, we'll tie all these things together as, we, together as we go through, and then finally, the feast of tabernacles. Well, it's also known as the feast of ingathering. This idea of dwelling together in unity. And the idea that eventually the Lord will return, that Israel will accept him as their Messiah, and he will come and he will literally tabernacle amongst us. He will set up his rule and reign his kingdom on this earth. So that's the outline. That's what I think we're going to see as we go through this. Acts 17, 11 applies. Search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Don't just take what I say, check scripture yourself, and see whether the Lord confirms this to your heart. Let's then jump into the text. So Joel chapter 1. That's what we're going to go through this morning. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. I just read this and straight away it struck me that God spoke, Joel listened. You know, not all do. God has spoken. The, The writer to the Hebrews makes it really clear that in these days, God has spoken to us through his son. But you know, there's a lot of people that choose to not listen. They don't have is to hear. Amos, the next book we're going to get on to study, Lord willing, will tell us that there's actually a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. There's not a famine of the word of the Lord, but there's a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. You know, we live in an age where we have better access to the tools and the, and the things that we need to understand and to dig into scripture. You don't have to be an expert in Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic, you could go and you can find online tools that will tell you exactly what the words mean and where they're used. Uh, I used a number of different tools. Um, studylight.org is a great um, tool for a lot of commentaries, uh, but the Blue Letter Bible is probably one of the best. Um, it's, it's a fantastic tool. You can put in any word, it will tell you where it occurs in Scripture and how it's used and so on, and how many times it occurs in each book. It's fascinating. Yeah, you know, We've got some incredible tools that enable us to understand and to dig into and read scripture, and yet we've got probably the most biblically illiterate generation imaginable. Sadly, many churches today in this land will meet together. They will worship the Lord. And I believe many of them will be doing it sincerely. And they really will be wanting to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. But then they'll get to their time of teaching, And someone will stand up and will say lots of nice kind of motivationally encouraging things so that everybody will go out feeling good about themselves. Sadly, we seem to have lost that art of preaching and teaching the word of God. Now we've got a real famine of hearing. Joel heard the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Joel. The Lord spoke it, but clearly we have this record. Joel recorded it. He spoke to his people, his nation. And of course, because we have this record, he speaks to us today. It's not good enough just to hear it. We've got to do something with it. What are we going to do with the word of God that he sows into our hearts? Are we going to let the hardness of the things around us choke out the word of God? People, you know, can't blame God when judgment comes. And this is going to be the theme that Joel is bringing. If they refuse to listen to what he said through his servants like Joel. You know, people will blame God for this and for that. Why God, doesn't God do this? Why? God has given us his word. He's spoken to us. Peter says we have the more sure word of prophecy. In the context, Peter's saying, you know, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. I saw this incredible thing, and Jesus is transfigured, and Moses and Elijah turn up. I was there. I was an eyewitness. But you know what? We've got something even better than that. We've got prophecy. Prophecy is this incredible thing that can convince the hardest of skeptics if they're just willing to listen. God through the prophets, has revealed the future in advance. That's something that mankind can't do. We can't guess. It's not something that you could just have a, you know, a stab at. It's not like uh, horoscopes. It's not like astrology or any of those kind of things where people try and guess what they're going to... We, we were briefly talking yesterday about star signs. Um, I don't even know what star sign I am, and I don't really care. Um, but you know, if anybody asks me, I always tell them I'm, I'm Leo. I was born in March. Because all the stars, all the star signs, they all tell the gospel. It starts with Virgo the Virgin, and it goes all the way round to Leo the Lion. It starts with the Virgin, the Virgin birth, and the whole thing goes around and concludes with Leo the Lion, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It got twisted and mixed up in Babylon, but the star signs are the same in all cultures. In fact, if you dig into it, you'll find, uh, there's a number of really good books on the subject, but the, if you, you, you look at it, you'll find that. The stars themselves in each of the sections, as we look in the heavens in each of the 12 sections, each star has a name. Now, what we've done is created this stupid dot-to-dot which doesn't really work. We kind of like made it into a picture which doesn't even look like the thing. But actually, if you look at the names of those stars, they tell a story. And the story they tell is the gospel. Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Okay, God has revealed the gospel in the stars. Why don't we know that today? We don't need it today because we've now got this. But for Adam and for Noah and for Moses, I believe they understood it. They knew it. And they passed it down from generation to generation. But we've now got the word of God. We don't need to rely on the the stars and the story that was contained therein. Verse 2. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers? It's interesting, you know, in Ecclesiastes it says that there's nothing new under the sun. You know, effectively the history kind of repeats itself. So so why do we have this verse? Well, God has promised that he will bring judgment. And Joel effectively steps onto the scene now and challenges the people that he's speaking to, have you ever known of anything like this? Now, the context here is they've just gone through this devastating locust plague. And he says, look around you. Has there ever been anything like this? Have your fathers ever told you of anything like this? Interesting that we live in a time that is kind of unlike any other time in history. You know, we've got more technology and and so on than than we've ever had. And yet we're more fragile, potentially, than we've ever been. There was once a time when we could make things and we could build things. And now, if Amazon are out of stock, we don't know what to do. You know, you think of the the pandemic that we're kind of still in, but we've gone through the last 18 months. Has there ever ever been anything quite like this? Yes, certainly there's been plagues in history. We kind of tend to forget about those things. It's so far away, it doesn't impact us. And no doubt in Joel's time, there were people that would have remembered or heard of those things that had taken place. But now Joel is saying, think about what's going on now. What's your assessment of the current situation? Do you assume that this is just Happen starts, just random events that have taken place? Or do you see God in this? Do you see that God is doing something in our days? Are you aware that prophecy is being fulfilled even now? And this is the challenge that Joel is bringing to these people. And Joel says, tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. Interesting, Joel's challenge to them is... Look, this is quite unlike anything we've seen. But we shouldn't be surprised. And we should understand it in the light of the God who is sovereign. And what do we tell our children about these things? Do we explain to them that God is working? That God is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year? That one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what's coming. But are we guilty of adopting the world's mindset that says, well, everything just carries on as it's always been. That gradual process of change over time. Our children are fed when they're at school. And then those children go out and become teachers or whatever professions they go into. And then they teach the next generation the same thing. So we've got a world now that's convinced that everything just carries on the same. And Joel is saying, no, 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 things are not. Right. And of course, God says that things will not always carry on the same. It's a big question for each of us. You know, What legacy are you leaving for the next generation? What are we teaching our children? What kind of world are they growing up in? And how do they interpret events like COVID? You know, do they see God's hand in all of these things? Will the next generation be one that knows to fear the Lord or one where, like it was in the time of judges, everyone does what's right in their own eyes? So, again, the backdrop historically to what Joel is saying here was this locust plague. Now Joel's going to mention these a number of times. Locusts are these, let me have a go at this word, uh, although prisoners, that, that one, okay? Uh, these these creatures, and they're along with cockroaches and uh, like mantises, praying mantises and those kind of things, grasshoppers and crickets and so on. Did you know, and I didn't, uh, there's about 24,000 different species of locusts. Are you interested? Probably not. Some can grow up to ten inches in length. That probably just, just strikes a little bit more well, about ten inches in length. That's, that's a little bit creepy, isn't it? I mean, particularly when you think that Egypt was overrun by these things and they were in the houses and you know they were you know, in the ovens and everywhere they looked. And they can multiply by parthenogenesis. What does that mean? Well, basically, it means that if a male's not around, the female is still able to reproduce. You can't stop these things. Larva go through about 4 to 14 different stages of development and it can sometimes take 6 to 7 years to fully mature. Scientists have apparently found a single hormone that when activated causes locusts to swarm together. So they don't naturally do this but something triggers and they suddenly do this and they become aggressive and gregarious and they will attack almost anything. When they swarm They don't just eat the plants on the surface, but they actually dig down and eat the roots that are below ground too. So they don't even leave anything to grow back after them. That's why they're so devastating. And Apparently, when these things have occurred, you can actually hear the sound of their munching at night. So if they're out in the fields and you're in a nearby town, you can listen, you can actually hear them munching their food. It's a little bit freaky, isn't it? Uh, They travel in this kind of really compact, like military-style march, and they make this kind of wind-like noise with their wings as they're flying, and they fly so densely packed together that they can even darken the sun, All right? and the uh, density in a swarm can be about 120 million locusts per square mile. They can fly for about 17 hours at a time, and swarms have been spotted about uh, 1,200 miles out to sea. Now, apparently, in 1889, there was a swarm in the Red Sea was spotted that covered 2,000 square miles. And this is just, I'm just trying to paint the picture of what Joel and his compatriots, the nation, had just gone through. This incredible local squad. There would be the number of these that have been recorded in history. But just kind of look at that as a kind of a picture. Would you like to be in there amongst them? Oh, pretty local. No, I don't think so. Or or another one for you. These are genuine pictures. You can Google it if you really have the interest to do so. That tree, entirely covered in locusts that are just munching through anything they can eat off of it. And just again, for the purposes of scale, there you go. Something just to store in your mind as you go home and have your lunch today. Into verse 4, we read this. That which the powerworm worm has left has the locust eaten. And that which the locust has left has the canker worm eaten. And that which the canker worm has left has the caterpillar eaten. I, we'll talk about some of the ideas of the way scholars try and interpret this. But the bottom line is that nothing's going to be left. Everything is gone. That, that, that's the top level. But a number of commentators suggest actually what we've got here, rather than four distinct creatures here, but it's actually four phases or stages that locusts go through. There's apparently the gnawing locust, and it kind of merges from the edge, egg in the spring. It doesn't have any wings at that point. There's the swarming locust, uh, and that's the most common, the wing locust. There's the licking locust. Uh, Jeremiah refers to this as caterpillar, which is another one of these kind of links. Um, and it's kind of the third phase, if you like. The old skin uh, gives way, and they have these small wings. And then there's the consuming locus, also referred to as the cankworm. Um, so again, typically about three inch long and so on. So it could well be that this verse is simply saying that the stages, of the locus, as it's going through, but they're literally going to destroy and eat everything. Uh, also, though, I just thought it was interesting. Um, some commentators have linked these two what was coming upon the nation of Israel. And they said the Palmer worm links to the Assyrians and the Chaldeans, the locust, the Persians and the Medes, the canker worm to the Greeks and particularly Antiochus Epiphanes, and then the caterpillar to the Romans. And there may be something in that. So i just throw it out there. I'll let you kind of think through and play through that as to whatever. But I mean, the idea clearly is the same, whichever route you take, whatever you think this is referring to. But then Joel says this, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and howl. Uh, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Now, I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was written later than this. And it may well be that Isaiah had a copy of this scroll of Joel in front of him as he writes these words. Because Joel is going to go and talk about the day of the Lord. We'll see the language change in a second. But let me read to you. I'm just going to pick up verse 9 of chapter 13 of Isaiah. And you'll see the the similarities in these things as well. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. He shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the gold wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth to remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. And it goes on from there. That's what Job. Uh, sorry, that's what Isaiah says, and I believe building on these things because of what is coming. It says, awake you drunkers and weep and howl all you drinkers of wine. No, I can't. I should have made a note of the verse. But, but this idea, the drunkers weeping and howling, the, the language Isaiah uses is very similar. We're not talking about people who are drunk with alcohol specifically, but it's as if they're drunk. They've become intoxicated by their lifestyle, by their comforts, by everything that's around them. But it's saying, of course, on the surface level, that these locusts have come through, they've literally destroyed everything in the land, the vines are no longer going to be able to produce the wine. Everything's being cut off from them. And then we read this, and clearly the language now changes to being prophetic of what's to come. And it's going to eclipse what has been. Because Joel says, For a nation is come upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion. And he has the cheek teeth of a great lion. Now, apparently, if you look at a locust under a microscope, his teeth are just like the teeth of a lion. There's a little interesting place here. Now, I just want to read to you from Revelation because we're going to start to see a, a tie up in all of these things. This is from Revelation chapter nine. And the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit and there arose smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And they came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass or the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seed of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts, were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were as it were crowns of gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions again the same kind of language that Joel's using. And they had breastplates as it were, the breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle, and their tails like unto scorpions and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. So, this is something in Revelation that we get, speaking of what is going to come upon the earth. Now, Joel was dealing with a real event that had taken place, but there's definitely an overlap in these ideas. Now, that picture was written by, uh, was drawn by a Christian artist by the name of Roddy Matthews uh, some years ago. And I had a really big uh, picture of this on my wall. My parents thought I was a bit weird. But, you know, it was, I, I love this. I just love the idea of, of the reality that this is one day going to come upon the earth. The world thinks this is so crazy. But scripture is very clear. There's going to come a time where these creatures of whatever type they are, the Lord is going to allow them to come upon the earth. And people are going to want to die, but they're not going to be able to die. That their sting is going to be so painful. Apparently a scorpion's skin sting is one of the most painful pains you can come across, you can know. And he speaks again, and they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue he has the name Apollyon. J. Vernon McGee just makes this comment. These locusts are further differentiated from ordinary locusts, and that they have a king over them. Proverbs 30 verse 27 says of natural locusts that they have no king. So these, king, these locusts clearly are not just ordinary locusts. It's just the king or leader of these locusts is probably one of the fallen angels, the chief henchman of Satan. And he's permitted to lead an invasion of earth for the first time. This is something that is going to be rather frightening. His name in Hebrew means destruction, and in Greek it means a destroyer. Verse 7 says, He has laid my vine waste, and barked my fig tree. He has made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Now, Again, there's a historical context and application to this. But clearly this is looking forward at something yet to come. Something that's going to come upon the land. And what I find really interesting here is the language. He has laid my vine waste. My vine. Who's speaking? God is speaking. What is God's vine? Israel. And barked my fig tree. he stripped it bare. What is the fig tree? It's another reference to Israel. And I think what we start to see here is almost chronologically laid out over the coming verses, a map of what is going to take place during the tribulation. Because when we get to the time of tribulation, we're going to find that Israel are going to be persecuted like never before. That this world is going to go through a time of wrath and judgment like it's never known. And as this book starts, Joel is, you know, have you ever heard of anything like this? Have you ever seen anything like this before? Have your parents ever heard of anything like this? What are you going to tell your children? There's lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. And the idea here is of a young woman who's betrothed, engaged to be married, but whose groom had died. Well, how interesting that is, because just as Ruth was joined to Boaz, so Israel should have been joined to her Messiah. And yet the Messiah was killed. And Israel never had that opportunity to be joined to their Messiah. And so thus Israel became like a virgin clothed in sackcloth. Albert Barnes in his commentary says this, He bids her lament with the bitterest of sorrows as one who in her virgin years was just knit into one with the husband of her youth and then at once was, by God's judgment, on the very day of her espousal, before yet she ceased to be a virgin, parted by death. The mourning which God commands is not one of conventional or becoming mourning, but that of one who has put away all joy from her and takes the rough garment of penitence girding the haircloth upon her, enveloping and embracing, and therewith wearing the whole frame. It just speaks of what I believe is the nation of Israel. They had the opportunity to accept their Messiah, but they rejected their Messiah. And since that point, they've been, as it were, a young girl looking forward to that wedding day, only to find that her groom is gone. In many respects, actually, the Song of Songs paints this kind of picture as well of this young girl searching, seeking for her lover. Of course, Israel have gone through all of this, putting on this sackcloth this morning, 2,000 years or so of mourning. Now this really starts to get very interesting in, in prophetic type. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. And the priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. That's exactly what's happened, isn't it? It happened, first of all, in 606, from actually 587 BC with the Babylonian third siege of Jerusalem. They were taken away. Sacrificing stopped. They got back to the land. They were able to start again. Then Antiochus Epiphanes comes in and stops it again. And then again, they, they can restart, and they get, of course, the time of Jesus. And then, of course, finally to AD 70, when the Romans come in and they destroy the temple. The meat offering and the drink offering was cut off from the house of the Lord. And the priests, the Lord's ministers, do more. Israel could not carry on with their sacrificial system. To this day, they've not been able to offer sacrifices as the law of Moses commands. There is no sacrificial system in place for Israel today. Just as Joel is saying here, at Joel's time, that was still a possibility. So clearly this is looking at something yet future. There is no sacrificial system yet. But you know, a leader is going to soon step onto the world stage. And he's going to allow Israel once again to offer sacrifices from a newly rebuilt temple. That's what scripture says is coming. Verse 10 goes on, the field is wasted, the land mourneth. For the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the oil languishes. Well, you know, in in AD 132, Emperor Hadrian, famous for his wall he built up north, had gone back to Rome, tired with the Jews in the land, and so had them absolutely expunged from the land, and ploughed Jerusalem over, destroyed everything that was there, cast them out of the land. The field is wasted, the land mourns. It's almost like a a summary of Israel's history as we go through this verse by verse. Verse 11. Be you ashamed, O ye husbandmen, and howl, O ye dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. Moses spoke of how Israel would be an astonishment to the nations. And clearly, Joel is saying the same thing. Be ashamed. How could Israel, who had been chosen of God, who had been so blessed, be scattered around the world? Again, you only need to read Deuteronomy 28 and the following chapters to see what God had foretold. It goes on, and says, the vine is dried up. Notice again the, the double reference here. The vine being Israel, the fig tree. The fig tree languishes. Speaking of the nation, looking again prophetically through the ages, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple, strictly speaking, it's fruit trees It's not just apple, it's any fruit. The fruit tree, even all the trees of the field are withered because joy is withered away from the sons of men. I mean, it's an incredible description of Israel's history. And as we saw in the book of Hosea, the nation that was supposed to be fruitful became unfruitful. Now, look at this. Verse 13. Girt yourselves. What does that mean? Get your coats on. Girt yourselves and lament, you priests. This is a specific, specific warning to the people, but specifically the priests here. ye ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth you ministers of my God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. I think this is fascinating because a few verses back we've just seen that sacrificing has stopped. Now we're told that it's been stopped. Or it's been withholden. Why are the priests and those ministering at the altar told to how? well, Because the offering in the house of God, which, if we are following this through chronologically through history, was destroyed, now it's implying it's rebuilt, is now withholden. That Hebrew word mornite there it means denied, kept back, or restrained. What's going to happen during the tribulation? Israel are going to be allowed to sacrifice again. And then Antichrist is going to put a stop to it. The sacrifice is going to be withholding. And the priests are going to lament. They're going to howl. Because suddenly, they're going to be in jeopardy for their own lives. Girt yourselves. Get your coats on. It's time to leave. Israel will be forced out of the land at this time. And then, verse 14. Fascinating. Sanctify ye a fast. Call a solemn assembly. But notice this. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. If I'm right in seeing this, that this is looking prophetically at what's going to take place during the tribulation. Israel will be in a place where they will be forced out of the land. Their sacrifices will stop. They won't be enter into the house of the Lord at that point. So who's this referring to? Well, we're going to see more of this in chapter 2. I think this, I'll be very upfront, I think this is now starting to look at the church. And there's a call here to the church, the elders. In the book of Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, the church is represented there by 24 elders. Very clearly. Has to be. The church has to be representative of the whole because they come from every tribe, tongue, nation, people. And the basis is the blood of Christ, those who have been saved by the blood of Christ. There's at least nine ways you can prove that in Revelation 5 it's speaking of the church, and the church at that point is taken from this world to be before the throne in heaven, the rapture. And that while we're there, I believe that we'll hear this call Sanctify you a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord, being gathered in. And cry unto the Lord your God. Now, we're going to see this build upon in the next chapter. We're not going to get there this morning. So read ahead and the next week we'll look at this. But I believe what we're going to see is a call to the church to intercede for Israel during the tribulation. Take place when the sacrifices have stopped, which is why these things seem to tie. And then verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. This is what we read in Isaiah, that time of, of judgment, that crawl, that wrath from the Lord upon this world. As a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Very clear, Joel's language again, Isaiah seemingly building on this, expounding on this, as many of the other prophets do. Because at that point, when Israel, in the midst of the tribulation, are forced to flee from the land, that is when, as Jesus puts it, the great tribulation will begin the tribulation is a period of seven years and typically we divide it into two three and a half year points scripturally so the first part we refer to as the beginning of sorrows first three and a half years the last three and a half years the great tribulation why well it's all a period of wrath and judgment but the first three and a half years god is holding back his full force of his wrath but for the last three and a half years the church are gone The tribulation saints have been taken out of the way, those that have come to the Lord through that time, and Israel are now out of the land as well. They've gone to flee, to hide in the land of Eden. And then God brings his full wrath upon this earth. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord, as a destruction from the Almighty, it shall come. This really is it, the great tribulation, as I said. Is not the meat cut off before our eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. I mean, Israel are going to be in utter despair at this point. The seed is rotten under their cloths, The garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed, because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. It's got a strange language until you start to look at the context of what's being said here. And we go on and we read, O Lord, to thee will I cry, for the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And the flame has burned all the trees of the field. It speaks of the nation being forced into the wilderness and nothing for the animals to eat and so on. And the last verse. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of waters are dried up, and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Once again, wilderness is introduced here. All of these things fit like a glove with what we know is coming with the tribulation. And Israel will be forced to flee into the wilderness. That's what Revelation 12 tells us. And of course, God will protect and find a place for her for three and a half years and provide for her. We'll build on it next week. Read ahead. This power hearts. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity this morning just to get this glimpse into these scriptures that seem to be prophetically outlining what is yet to come and that Joel used those real historical events to bring us this message. But Lord, the challenge is there for us. Lord, have we ever known a time like this? Oh Lord, our parents went through some staggering periods of history, World War I, World War II. But Lord, has there ever been a day quite like the one we are living in now? And Father, what are we going to do With our children, what are we going to teach them? Oh, Father, may we tell them that the Lord is in control, that he is sovereign, that his hand is upon all of these things and everything is working its way out according to his divine plan. Father, may that be the message that we bring to our children and to our friends and to our family, to tell them that there is far more to come, but there is safety and there is security in Jesus Christ. Lord, stir our hearts with these things, we pray this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.